Turn to John chapter number 6. We have broke out of John 5 and we are in new territory. We are 25% through the book of John and uh, we're continuing on. We did change the graphic this morning partially to keep it fresh. You see a new graphic and think, wow, this is new. It's not really. We're still in John and we'll be for some time, but uh, it'll help keep your attention. Partially because I'm tired of you asking me, why is there a slash through John? How many of you have thought that to yourself? All of you have asked me, I think. So I don't know. I didn't design it, okay? It's just, it's just a thing. I don't know why, but it's gone now. And here's the new one. And uh, partially because it's a natural shift in the text. So John 6, 7, 8, 9, in the first part of 10, is Jesus really leveraging these feasts, these festivals that the Jewish people had to show who he was. Uh, this one is going to tell us is very near to the time of Passover. He's going to talk a lot about bread, manna from heaven, those sorts of things, which would kind of segue into Passover. But then 7, 8, and 9, first part of 10, get really, really clear as Jesus begins to use these festivals. So it's, it's kind of a natural shift in the text, honestly. But here we are in John 6, verse number 1, and this starts uh, a little bit of a narrative from John on one of the most famous miracles in all of the Bible. So this is one of the most famous partially because it's listed in all four Gospels. It's actually the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that kind of gives it more notoriety. And it also it's just this awesome story. It's this uh, really cool story that we love to tell in Sunday school, those sorts of things about the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going to read this passage. I will tell you up front that it's going to take us two or three weeks to work through this chapter. It's like 70-some verses long. It's a long chapter. And you eventually get to, in verse 22 to the end of the chapter, Jesus will tell you why he does this miracle, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't really give you that. But John gives you the very clear, here's what this miracle is about. So we're going to hit that in due time and see very profoundly what this was about. But we'll just cover the, the story today and, uh, and glean a bit from it. So read with me, if you would, uh, John 6, verses 1 through 15. Bible says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is, in, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So just historical note here, John tends to cover large sections of time quickly. Jesus will be in Galilee, then it's like, after these things, boom, he's in Jerusalem. Then after these things, boom. John really, oftentimes, he'll skip big chunks of time just to get to the point he wants to make. So when he says after these things, he, there could be a, a pretty good span of time there. A Sea of Galilee, also called Tiberias, they called it two things after the, the town Tiberias that was on the bank of Galilee. And the Bible says a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them, that were diseased. So here are these people that are coming for show and tell, basically. Verse 3, Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? So Jesus is trying to get some alone time with his disciples, but here come all these people wanting to come after him. And he asked Philip this question, and this verse 6 says, he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread. So that's about six to eight months wages. So half a year's worth of work. If we did all that and bought bread with it, that's not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, there's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? 
And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place and the men sat down and number about 5,000. So 5,000 men, of course, women and children. We don't know exactly how big this crowd is, 10, 15, 20,000 people. I mean, this is a lot of people that have come to see Jesus. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Therefore, they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, they said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Let's pray. We'll have one more song and then we'll try to understand what it is this text is teaching us. Well, here is this story where this poor little boy is a conduit of God's power, more or less. We know that this is a a poor boy because it tells us that he has barley loaves. A barley was the food of the poor. And that had been not just in the first century, for a long time. We wouldn't really think of it nowadays because we don't uh, oftentimes try to ascertain, you know, what grain we're using by our income level. But uh, even as late as the 1700s, the British author Samuel Johnson quipped that barley is a grain which in England we feed to our horses and in Scotland they feed to men basically saying we have enough money to give this to our horses we would never eat that but in Scotland they'll feed it to men which coincidentally James Boswell the Scottish writer responded back that maybe that's why in England you have better horses but in Scotland we have better men but the the point was that hey that's for poor people right we're rich you're poor you eat the poor stuff you eat barley and that was the the same case in the, in the first century that this is a little kid we're told a lad a, a child and he's from a poor family and from a human perspective he's very insignificant but the the moral of the story more or less is really that in the hands of jesus christ the insignificant becomes highly significant in the hands of jesus the insufficient becomes sufficient and in the hands of jesus this little lunch becomes super abundant able to feed thousands of people and not just feed them a little bit but give them a feast so what do we glean from this i'm going to give you three things and they're very simple honestly but they'll lay a good foundation as we begin to set the framework through G- for jesus's discussion about this miracle later on in uh in john 6 as we move through with this the next couple weeks first i would say this just know his power so this is a point that honestly you could make from any of the miracles of jesus but I've been waiting to make this, and I think that this is a great place to make it because this is not just Jesus doing something, but he's involving other people. And, and the Bible says here in verse 6 of John 6 that Jesus knew what he was going to do, right? So Jesus knows what he's going to do, but he asked Philip this question. The Bible says to prove him or, or to test him or to help him learn. And, and Jesus could have snapped his fingers and could have made lunch for these people. He, he could have done this, but instead... He gets his disciples all nervous and kind of up in arms and upset and scrambling around trying to figure out how they're going to solve this problem, how they're going to feed these people. And then eventually he takes a little boy and and he grabs his lunch from him and and feeds the people. But why do all this, right? Why set the stage? Why all the drama if you could have just snapped your fingers and fed the people if the people needed fed? And the reason is that he's trying to teach them something. 
He's trying to help them understand. And if you listen to what he's trying to teach in this, honestly, I think that you'll not just be the better off for it, but maybe you'll never be the same. And what he's trying to teach more or less is that his, his power is something that isn't just observed. It can be observed, but it's something that we can share in and participate in. In the Bible, God's power is best seen as life-giving power. You will find that Jesus uses this miracle in his discussion later on, and he talks about how I am bread from heaven, and this is similar to the manna from heaven that fell in the Old Testament. And I fed the children of Israel. They were in the desert and in the wilderness. I give them bread to feed them in the wilderness. I, I give them life in a place that's dead where nothing will grow. That's what the wilderness is. That God's all-sustaining power, his ability to create and sustain life is there. And so from this, the prophets, biblically and historically for the Jewish people, said that a Messiah is going to come and he's going to feed his people with bread from heaven. And Jesus is kind of serving notice here in a way that he is the bread from on high. He is the Messiah. But you see that he's giving life through this. We're, we're introduced to the power of God very early in the Bible in Genesis 1 as this God who speaks life, this creator who has the power to produce life at his will. In the New Testament, Paul talks about the power of God as this resurrection power, this power to defeat our biggest enemy, death, to actually overcome it. He describes it in Ephesians 1 as he prays for the church at Ephesus, and he says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? And this power is towards us, it's usward, towards those that believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul is saying that here is this power of God that I'm describing in this incomparably great, this resurrection power that brings forth life, that defeats death and gives death its funeral. And the message of Christ more or less is that there is eternal life-giving power in Jesus Christ and that death has died. Paul, even in Ephesians 1, has to, he has to heap up descriptors to describe the power of God. He calls it the exceeding greatness of his power. In Greek, it would read as the hyperbolo megatos dunamos. Now, I don't say that to wow you. I took a few semesters of Greek, just enough to get in trouble. I'm, I'm no Greek expert. I, I say that to you because you can almost hear our English counterparts. We've come up with English versions of these words, the, the hyperbolo megatos dunamis. So you can almost hear it as this <clears throat> hyperbolistic, megatonic dynamite of God. That those are the words that we've derived from that. that. That's how Paul is describing the power of God. That it's, it's incomparably great is what he's trying to say. I'll put it to you this way. We would think that our, our greatest weapon that allows us to yield the most power would be an atomic bomb. But an atomic bomb is one one-thousandth of a hurricane. And we find in Psalm 29 that the Lord sits enthroned above or on the hurricane. It technically says flood, but you could definitely read it the same way, that God's above that. But even a hurricane is is just a small fraction. It's actually a billionth of the power of a, of a small surface eruption on the sun, which is a relatively small star. But the Bible says that God scatters the stars like they're sand. And even our sun, this, this small star, is just a, a small fraction of a supernova. But even a supernova is just a 
speck in, in a galaxy, and much less the galaxies that are speckled around, that a supernova is just this, this tiny little minuscule part of our universe. And what is Paul saying? Is he trying to describe the power of God as the power of an atomic bomb, as the power of a hurricane, power of, of a star, power of a supernova, power of a galaxy? He's trying to say, no, this is beyond, beyond. Like, this is greater than great. You can't comprehend the power of God. You try to imagine it in your head, and you can't even skim the surface of what it's supposed to be. And in this story, you see in this small way, the power of God moving through this conduit, this little boy's lunch, and being able to use this, and it, and it super abundantly gives more than they could have imagined. And you find on display this, this death-destroying, life-giving supernatural power of Jesus, power of God. So you, you have to at least admire that this is a miracle that is a true miracle. If you doubt that, I would pose to you this question. I think the reason that the, that the gospel gives us miracle in every single gospel is because it gives you this external witness to the veracity of the Bible and of the miracles of Jesus that within 30, 40, 50 years of Jesus' death, there are these gospels circulating around Palestine where Jesus supposedly did these miracles. And if, if you say you did a miracle where 15,000 people were present, and then you circulate all this documentation that says it, those documents are never going to get off the ground. They're never going to gain traction. They're never going to actually be spread around as something that's truth and something that's valid if it didn't. Now, it's one thing if you're like, hey, I did a little miracle over here with six people in a room by itself, and some of those happened. Or I did this at a pool, and there were like five people around, and no one really noticed what was happening. This is a different one. This is big. This is grand. There's no way this gets circulated without, without it actually had happened. So you see the, the power of God on display in this, but more than that, I think you have to connect it to yourself, and, and it means this, that we need to see our own powerlessness, which is the complete opposite, and it's not just, oh, in comparison to God, I'm powerless because he's so great and I'm so much smaller, but it is literally to see your own powerlessness. Jesus is wanting them to see his power, but to know that they lack in this text. And this isn't just so he can be a show-off, right? That we do this sometimes. We have our own little human version of power, and sometimes we tend to, to show off. You know, look, look at all the money I have and what I can buy. Look at all the people I have under me. I say jump. They say how high. Look at the commands that I can give. L look at what I know. You know, eat your heart out. Look at the power that I have. Sometimes people in, in our culture can do this, but this isn't Jesus telling them just observe my power. This is why verse 6 is so pivotal. That it says, he asked Philip this question. Philip, what are we going to do, man? Why? And it tells you, so that he could prove him, so that he could test him, so that he could teach him something inside of this. He's not trying to show off. He's trying to get him involved. He's trying to get him to experience it. And he doesn't go to Andrew and Philip and say, watch this. He goes to them and says, guys, what are we going to do? Philip, what are we going to do? And what does Philip do? He starts to run the numbers. How many of you numbers people? Number crunchers in here, Philip starts to run the numbers, you know, uh, projected income versus projected expense. I need to look at my P&L. I need to see what that looks like. I need to make sure that we have some margin here. I need to forecast spreadsheets, spreadsheets, spreadsheets. I'm crunching this. I'm trying to figure it out. Okay, 1,000, 2,000, 15,000. Uh, how much money do we have? Uh, Judas, how much money do we have? Uh, I don't know. We, we're missing some. All right, forget that. We, we got some uh, six, eight months wages. We could feed the, uh, oh man, not much. Peanut butter, no, not even jelly. Just peanut butter open-faced peanut butter. Jesus, it don't work. It don't work, Jesus. We, we can't even give them a little bit. 
There's no way we have enough ministry money to facilitate this. Why is Jesus doing this to Philip? Why the drama? Why, why make him get there? Even Andrew. Andrew comes, and, and good on him. He's like, Jesus, I got a kid with like two fish and um, five barley loaves, but he even admits, what's that among so many? Like, we ain't making a dent in this. I mean, I found something at least out here. It's not completely barren, but what are we going to do here? Well, now, I will say this. There's nothing wrong with running the numbers. Okay, I'm not against you making a plan, making a budget, you know, listen to Dave Ramsey on the way home, whatever, have at it. But running your numbers without God is a problem, right? You just, oh, it has to work on paper, and then I can feel good about myself, and then it'll all work. Like, that, that's not always how it works. And I don't say that to say, Oh, Pastor Mark said, go put it on a credit card and then just trust God it'll work out. No, I'm saying the opposite. Be generous with what you actually have. And sometimes it doesn't work out on paper, but God blesses that and God works through that. So I'm not against numbers, but understand you got to include God in your numbers, right? So here, here are these two that Jesus is using and they're coming to this point where they're basically saying, well, we don't got it. We're at an impasse. We're at a loss. We don't know what to do here. We're powerless in the situation. If I had six months of pay, I still couldn't make a dent in this. What are we going to do here? And he's trying to help them see their own powerlessness. Now, if you think that's unusual, this works on a lot of levels. Culturally, this is very prevalent. If you've ever heard of or been a part of any sort of 12-step program, you would know exactly what this is. Whatever you think about a 12-step program, I don't really care. That's beside the point. But we at least have to love step one. What's step one of a 12-step program? Admit your powerlessness over this. That's helped a lot of people to admit that I'm not going to be able to figure this out. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to white-knuckle this. I'm not going to be able to figure I'm just mowing the weeds. It looks good for a minute, then they spring right back up. I can't do this. And Jesus is trying to get them to that point. I was recently at a restaurant uh, just doing some work by myself, and my computer was low on battery, so I plugged it into a, to an outlet that I supposed would give me power. But it was one of the outlets that were upside down, right? You ha normally, you have two prongs, little dot on the bottom, but sometimes they're upside down. Anyone know what that means? That means that it's controlled by a switch, that you can turn that on and off. If you didn't know that, there you go. You, you now know that means it's controlled by a switch. So I saw that, but I plugged it in and didn't really pay much attention to it and thought that my computer would have power. So I keep working and then, it, you know, 1%, you know, you're about to die, it's about to crash. And I realized what I thought had power, s someone hadn't flipped the switch, I don't know where the switch is, is not actually supplying me power, it's powerless. So what did I do? I unplugged from the powerless and went and found another plug that had power and I switched my seat so that I could get power because I needed it, right? And, and what Jesus is doing is he's not just trying to help them see I have power over here. He's also trying to help them see you don't. There's, there's, there's no power in and of yourself. You have to unplug from you and come to me. I'm trying to get you to a place of dependency. I'm trying to get you to a place where you see that you need me Come plug into me. Now, if we're halfway honest, life is a continual progression of incrementally, incrementally realizing how powerless you are over and over again. I have a five-year-old. He turned five this week. He thinks that he's a T-Rex. For real. 
He, he thinks that he can go T-Rex mode and he can exert the power of a T-Rex stomping, chomping. He thinks he can do it. But you know what? He'll grow out of that, will he not? And he'll eventually realize, not you're a human, you're not T-Rex, you can't be T-Rex. And he'll be 16, 17, 18. But even then, in his youth, about to enter into adulthood, he'll think that he has a lot of power. If he's like most 17, 18-year-olds, He'll look life in the face and he'll think, you know what? I'm off to a good start. I think I got what it takes. I think that I can make this work. I, th I think I got a plan. It'll, it'll happen like this, 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 this. And I'm going to go tackle life and I'm going to be aggressive with it and it'll work out. And then life is just going to upside the head one day, right? And eventually he's going to be overrun. Like he's going to be trampled down and overwhelmed by I can't make my marriage work on my own and I'm struggling to figure this out. I can't figure out parenting on my own. I was real good when I didn't have kids. I knew what everyone else should do, but now it's a, extremely more difficult than I thought it was. I thought my career would trend this way and not this way or not this way. And, and eventually he'll get to a point where he realizes this isn't working out. And even if he's part of the 1% that tend to have like this good marriage, good kids and good career, like it's tough to find that where someone reaches 40, 50 and, and they hit that. He's gonna hit what we know as a midlife crisis. What's a midlife crisis? A midlife crisis is when you finally realize all that you thought you were going to be able to accomplish when you were 18, 20, and 30, now you realize, mm, no, not going to. And reality starts to set in, right? That I didn't have the power that I thought I did. And even if that doesn't get him, he's gonna enter into an empty nester phase. He's going to go into this phase of retirement. And if I've seen it once, I've seen it a thousand times that you enter that phase where life starts to slow down and you would think that you would have the most control over life. The, the nest egg is there a little bit. You're a little bit more financially secure. You've gone through the tough times of parenting. And I, over and over and over again, I've seen it where people realize I don't have power over my emotions and start to be overrun by anxiety and start to be overrun by their sense of, I was in the middle of it and I was just doing, 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 doing. I didn't have time to think about it, but now I have time to think about it and it all comes crashing down on me. Start to realize that even in my own spiritual life that, that I thought it would be further along. And if all that doesn't get you, you'll come to the day you die and realize that I don't have power over this. I cannot change this. I cannot move my death day on my own. It's not within my power. Over and over, you say, that's depressing. It can be. It can be, but it can also be very healthy. If you realize and you get to a point where I am powerless to really be the dad I need to be, to really be the husband I need to be, to really be the grandma I need to be, to really have the, the, the emotional spectrum that's normal that, that I need to really do. I can't, I can't do it on my own. To get to that point actually is a healthy thing. Now it's a painful thing and it's something that we don't particularly like or enjoy, but it actually is a healthy thing. And Jesus is, is getting these guys there. He's getting them to this point to where they run the numbers and they figure it out and they pull all the resources together and they try to, to see how could this happen and they, they come to a place where they say, I can't. We're powerless over this situation. And, and like, a, like a surgeon who cuts so that you will eventually be healed, Jesus in his mercy and in his grace at times will cut you down and will shrink you down and will get you at a point where you realize that, you know what, I can't handle this and I can't do this to bring you to a point to where you realize I got to plug into him. My own, my own plug ain't working. It's not producing what I need. 
So you got to see his power. You got to see your own powerlessness. And, and that's a big part of this story. But you also have to put what you have in his hands. And that really is the crux of the whole thing. But here this boy, in verse 11, encounters maybe the scariest part of the whole passage. Here comes Andrew, got the boy, got the stuff. And verse 11 tells us, Jesus took the loaves. All right, so the little boy has a lunch that feeds the city. So that's wonderful, that's awesome. But something had to happen first. Jesus took it. He took his lunch. Here's a little boy in the desert with 15,000 famished people, but at least he has lunch, right? Not no more. You think Jesus leaned over and whispered, hey, I'm going to do something special. Just give it to me. We don't see anything like that. We see a, I lose control. I surrender. Of course, we know what's going to happen. We're like, yeah, little boy. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's a hungry little kid and he gives it up. And he, he, can't, he doesn't have any power over it anymore. But what happens in this? Because he gives it up, he ends up eating far more than he possibly would have ever on his own. Because he surrenders his lunch. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Because most people say, you know what? I can relate a little bit. I can relate with being mowed down by life. I can relate with feeling like I, I need something more than myself. At times, I'm confident of, in myself, but then other times, my self-confidence vacillates and I, and I don't feel like I can do it. And I, mean, I need something to surge through me. I need some sort of power. Yes, I need this, but not everyone experiences it. Say, why? Because God's stingy? No. Why, well then why doesn't everyone, why doesn't everyone be a channel of his power? Why doesn't everyone be a conduit? Why don't we see God work in these ways in our own lives? I'll give you three reasons why in the negative, and I think it will help you understand the positive of what you need to do. Here's why. First is, a lot of people don't experience his power just because they don't believe on him. But that, that's definitely step one, and this is where the whole text is headed. In verses 28 and 29 of John 6, Jesus is going to tell them, look, I did this so that you could receive power so that you could have something and I need you to do something. And they said, what do we do? Verse 28, they said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he sent. Jesus, what do we do? What work do you want us to do? Believe on me. Believe on me. You get to the end of the chapter and sadly you find that the vast, vast majority of these people do not believe on him. And even the people who had previously said that they believed on him decide, nah, uh, I'm out. I liked you as a meal ticket. I liked you for the show, but I will not believe on you and follow you. So much so that you get to the end of John 6 and it says that from that time on, many of his disciples went back and they walked no more with him. And Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, will you also go away? You gonna leave me too? Jesus shrinks his ministry with this miracle because he doesn't just leave it at, I give you bread, I'm here for you, just whatever you want is here. No, he's, he roots it back in belief in him and coming to him. And you have to understand that you could portray the gospel in this way, that you are powerless in your sin to overcome it, to forgive yourself, to get rid of the debt, to give yourself eternal life and to give yourself heaven. You can't do it, you're powerless. God has the power. He puts that on display on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus bridges the gap between your powerlessness and the power of God so that you can partake. 
And, and he wants those to believe on him. He wants you, if you've never put your faith and trust in him, to believe on him as Savior and Lord and to understand that when you see yourself as flawed and imperfect and incapable, you're absolutely right. You're accurate. But he is perfect and he is capable and he has it for you if you'll go to him and put your faith in him and he will give you his power. He will give you eternal life. Divine power, power from above, life-giving power, death-breaking power. That is available to those that put their faith in Jesus, like feed you in the desert power. But you have to believe. He's not going to give you his power when you're not on his team. How many of you, raise of hands, were children of the 90s? You grew up in the 90s, okay? You're going to love me. The rest of you are going to be like, what are you talking about? But I warned you up front, Okay. Space Jam was a great movie in the 90s. I never thought I'd use Space Jam in a, in a sermon illustration, but here we are. It's where we find ourselves. If you don't know what Space Jam was, it was this fictional movie, obviously, where the Looney Tunes have to go hire Michael Jordan to help them defeat the Monstars in a game of basketball. And if you like basketball, I'm telling you, this is for you. And they come, and Michael Jordan and the Looney Tunes try to fight the Monstars and beat them at halftime. They are woefully down. Some of you are nodding your head. You know, you watch this like a million times. They're, they're so down, and Bugs Bunny comes to the team with a bottle of Mike's secret stuff. This bottle that is power, this bottle that will give you what Michael Jordan has in basketball. If you drink this, you will be awesome. And so the team drinks it down. They go out, they win the game, they defeat the Monstars. It's completely awesome. But Bugs doesn't go to the Monstars and give them Michael's secret stuff. You say, why would Bugs Bunny not do that? Because they were on the other team, right? They were the opponent. They were the enemy. They were the ones that were not on his team. Now, if you want the power of God, we'll call it Michael's secret stuff for sake of the illustration. You don't get it if you're not on his team. That's logical. It would only make sense that he's going to supply it to those that are his children, that those that are for him, that those that want to make his name great, not for those that want to go work for the devil. Like that, it doesn't work that way. Or work for yourself even. And it's only available to those that believe on him. So some people don't experience this just because they won't believe on Jesus. They won't put their faith and trust in him. So start there. Secondly and thirdly, I'll give you because together, because they're connected to each other. A lot of people don't experience this because they don't know that God is for them. And a lot of people don't experience this because they just refuse to obey God. So let's talk about those in turn. Inside of this miracle, you, you have this definite facet where the text is trying to make it very clear that this was not just people were hungry, Jesus fed them supernaturally. This was people were hungry, Jesus fed them supernaturally. And there's over and abundant, this wealth, this supply that is over and above. The text works very hard to make you see that they took all they wanted. They ate till they were full. There were 12 baskets left over that they had to collect up and gather all these fragments and, and, and put to use. That Jesus said, go get them. So in the Old Testament, when manna fell from heaven, there was a day's ration. It spoiled after the day. You got it incrementally, little by little by little by little as that bread from heaven came. In this instance, there is this, this overabounding vitality, this 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 plethora that's left over when it's all said and done, and you find that there's this, there's this sense, almost like John 2. If you remember John 2, you can go back and review it. We talked about Jesus being Lord of the feast, 
Jesus producing 120 gallons of drink that was amazing and him just kind of going over above and how the, our life in Christ is supposed to be this feast and this enjoyment and not just this drudgery. And you can almost see that happening here as well where there's this, there's this overabundant supply that is meeting a practical need in their lives that is for them, that is helping them, that is for their benefit. And you would think that the disciples would have thought like, hmm, we have a need. I remember the wedding at Cana. Jesus, do you do bread too? But they never got there. Like they, they have to be shown that they're helpless, that Jesus steps in and he gives them more and more and more and more. Now that doesn't mean that God's your genie. Okay, that doesn't mean that he does whatever you want. You as a parent or grandparent, if you've ever maybe saved up a college fund or something for your children or grandchildren, you get this. That if you set aside some money and thousands of dollars to try to help their education that you think with wisdom will be, will be good for them in the long run, and that 16-year-old comes to you one summer and says, hey, gramps, dad, mom, whatever, you know what? I'd like $10,000 from my college savings fund because I want to go buy a motorcycle and I just want to live carefree this summer and just have a good time with my friends. What would you tell them? You would, if you were wise, you would tell them no. Motorcycle will kill you. You need to work a job and get a work ethic. Okay, that's what you would tell them. I have saved this, right? And if they respond to you and tell you, well, what good is all that money in the bank if I can't put it to use and I can't use it how I see fit? You would say, trust me, I'm older than you. I'm wiser than you. Just, just know that this is for you, but how I see fit, I'm gonna dole it out when the time is necessary because I have the wisdom and you need to trust me for this, right? In a similar way, you, this text and many other texts in the Bible say that you have access to the life-giving, life-sustaining, abundant power of God is not to say that God's your genie and now you get to go just go do whatever you want. He, in his wisdom, will give it to you as he sees fit. And if you look at him and say, uh, why isn't this happening? I don't, I don't think it should go this way. I, I don't like what you're doing. What good is this hooperbalo megatos dunamos if I can't partake of it whenever I want, God? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in real life with you and it doesn't work that way with God. But understand that God is for you. If God be for us, who can be against us, right? Understand that Scripture tells us the thoughts that I think towards you that therefore you're good, therefore an expected end. So understand that Christianity isn't this, this no, don't, yeah, stop, thou shalt not, be on your best behavior and maybe you'll make it to heaven one day. That's not what it's about. It's supposed to be this amazing feast where you understand that God in his power and even his, his commands to obey is for us, but you have to pair that with the obedience. So a lot of people, maybe they don't obey because they don't see that God is for them, maybe it's vice versa, I don't know. But a lot of people don't see God as for them. A lot of people just don't obey. What does it mean to put your loaves in his hands, right? What does it mean to give God your biscuits? It means that you obey him. It means that you surrender and you say, no holds barred. There's nothing off limits in my life. I am giving it all to you. Not one fish, three loaves, but I'm going to give it all to you. I'm going to surrender it all to you and I'm going to see what you do. Remember Abraham and Sarah. Hebrews 11 tells us that great hall of faith. That Abraham and Sarah, who have the most press in that chapter, 
received these promises from God, right? God told them, hey, Abraham, you're 100 plus, Sarah, 90 plus, but you're gonna have a kid. Plan your life around it, bank on it, it's coming. Now, Sarah has moments of up and down, but Hebrews 11 tells us that she judged him faithful who had promised. We're told later that the kid comes, Isaac, and that Abraham is told to take him up on Mount Moriah and the sacrifice. And we're told that Abraham did this because he accounted that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Sarah judges. Abraham accounts. What are they doing? They're reasoning. They're rationing. They're thinking. They're, they're trying to engage and they're they're coming to this point where God is telling them, this is what I want to do. This is what I want you to do. And it's difficult and it's tough. And they don't naturally want to obey or take him at his word. But then they judge and they account and they think about God and his power, that he can do this, that he is life-giving power, that he is for us. And because of that inner process, they trust, they have faith, they obey, right? So these are mingled together to see that you need to, you need to engage with this. If, if your thought process is, okay, I'll obey God with my life. Sure, have my biscuits, right? Whatever you want, I will, I'll do it. So show me the new job you want me to have. Show me the spouse you want me to marry. Show me the city you want me to move to. And when that comes, hypothetically speaking, I've surrendered, I'll do it, God, I'm in. You don't get off the hook that easily nor do I. Am I talking about future surrender to this big picture and amazing things that God may do in your life? Flip your tables over one day? Yeah, maybe, yeah. But what about today? Okay, what about tomorrow? What about yesterday? What about the things that God has already told you he expects of you? Are you being obedient to that? Right, so are you, are you known for being a thoroughly honest person? Just bottom shelf it. Are you known for being a radically generous person? Are you known for being this person who's, who's loving and is willing to self-sacrifice and put yourself out there for others? Are you known for being a person who at one hand will stand up for justice, but on the other hand won't do it with, with a shred of, of indecency or ill will towards those that are, oppose you? Are you going to forgive them or are you going to stay bitter? Right? Are you going to be micromanaging, controlling your whole life? Are you going to trust God? Are you going to worry to death? Or are you going to put it in his hands? All these things that we wrestle with day to day. You say, no, 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 that's, I mean, I can trust God with that future big stuff, but I mean, that's too hard. If I'm thoroughly honest, I'm never going to get the promotion. I mean, everybody is sly a little bit. Like everybody has to you know, cheat on their taxes some and everyone has to, you know, manipulate the deal a little bit and not tell the whole truth. If I do that, I'll never be the employee that I'm supposed to be and I'll never get that promotion. If I obey this and this, then that means they're going to drop me like a hot potato and they're going to want nothing to do with me or they're going to laugh at me or my family's going to think I'm some sort of religious zealot because now I'm obeying the Bible and I, I do what God tells me to do. If I forgive them, they're going to take advantage of me. I've seen it a million times. I'm just going to let them off the hook, forgive them, they take advantage of me. Now, what, we, what we're saying in those moments where we start to think that way and we start to act that way is we are, we're tacitly admitting that intellectually, I know there must be some great power out there that runs the universe, but I refuse to practically treat him that way in my life. I am not going to 
obey what I know. I'm not going to place myself over in his hands and say, I trust. I don't see how it's going to work out. I don't see how it makes sense. But I believe in your power that you can do that. I, no, instead, I'm going to hedge my bets and I'm going to trust some in me and I'm going to refuse to shift the center of gravity from me over to God. And there's a problem there. The problem is that you're not giving God your lunch. The problem is that you're not surrendering. We all tend to do this. I'll, I'll confess my sins this morning, okay? I'll tell you how I do this over and over and over again. And we'll be done. Just about every week of my life is I have a plan, I have a schedule, there are meetings, there are this or that, all this stuff that I have to do. And just about every week, this pops up, this pops up, this pops up, and you know, it, it just gets blown to smithereens before you know it. And in those moments, it's very easy for me to now say, you know what, I'm too busy doing pastoral work, the work of God, holy man, helping those people, talking about this, you know, doing this, doing that. I'm so busy doing this that now, you know what, my prayer life can be a shell of what it should be. I'll spend a fraction of the time there. Now I'll read my Bible, but I have to read it because I have to preach something. I have to get it for content. No approaching to have a relationship with God and to enjoy it and to commune with him, but just so that I can get something out of it and then go deliver it to somebody else and prep content. It's very easy for that schedule and that craziness and that busyness to start to just devour my own personal walk with God. But when that happens, when I, when I do that, what I'm saying is I don't think that I can commune with God and put him first and have a relationship with him and all the rest of the schedule and everything else is going to work out and that, th that this will take care of itself. I'm in a way, I'm admitting God doesn't have the power for me to walk with him and get all the stuff done. It's one or the other. And I'm admitting I'm not giving him my lunch. I'm not surrendering. And we do this over and over and over and over again. And the point is that you have to see that he has power for sure. You have to know that you're completely helpless and you're powerless on your own. And then you have to, you have to, you have to give him the biscuits. You have to let go. You have to say it's all yours I'm done. Here it is. And if you will do that, see what he does. And I say that partially from personal experience, but primarily from the promises of the word of God. Do that and see what he does. See if it's not the greatest roller coaster ride you've ever been on. See if he doesn't start to work and act and shape and guide and do things in your life that you never saw coming from a mile away. Here he comes and starts to work and do things in your life that are just astounding and amazing that will thrill you, enjoy you to death. But you have to do verse 11. You have to let him take it. You gotta let him take it. You gotta get to a point where you say, my faith is in Jesus and Jesus alone. I see this incredible power that God has. I see how, how much I lack and I give him my loaf. Here it is. I surrender, take control.